0: Now, let me introduce our panel to you this morning. With us in studio, Darmita Hearn, former minister and columnist for the Daily Mail, Professor Neve Harrigan, vice president of Mary Immaculate College Limerick, Suzanne Kelly, uh, tax lawyer Kevin Doyle, group political editor with INM, and Stephen McNamara, communications director with the IRFU. And uh, you are all very welcome And I'm going to start
1: uh, with you, Stephen, because first of all, it was a great day yesterday. Great day yesterday. Yeah, great to see the team uh, sort of performing to their best again. I think there's still uh, more improvements there within the team, but I think we saw a more cohesive approach yesterday to the team. I think they'd be happy with it.
0: Okay, we'll come back to that in a second. There's a story in the Sunday Times today written by uh, Stephen Jones saying... Going on about the IRFU, going on about the permutations, going on about Scotland, Japan, etc. And the last thing they needed were the interventions by Ireland and New Zealand. The implication being that Ireland and New Zealand were trying to influence whether or not fresh arrangements could be made for scotland and japan and they say the irish and scottish unions have been at loggerheads for some time because scotland did not vote for the irish bid to host the 2023 world cup and when we were talking about this yesterday quite a few texts came in they didn't vote for us people (laughs) have memories about these things and they don't like it and i now have um uh statement from the IRFU, which I presume was written by you uh, in parts
1: this morning yes <laughs> it's a little bit late coming in this morning as a result. Yeah, uh, Scurrilous and untrue. give us the background: Yeah no it's just, it took us completely by surprise this morning actually. Um, we, uh, we, we, we weren't approached by Stephen Jones, which I have to say is, uh, is, is, is well sorry it, it would be unusual for an Irish journalist not to approach us with Stephen of course um, probably writes more so for the UK edition of The, time, uh, the Sunday Times. Um, so no approach was made to us. Uh, woke up this morning uh, have heard nothing uh, f- from World Rugby in relation to it either so I think it was a surprise by them. We absolutely had no opposition whatsoever. We would no opinion really on whether or not the game uh, went ahead. We certainly didn't make any representation to World Rugby one way or the other in relation to it. We were just focusing on our own game to be honest which at one stage looked like it may or may not go ahead um, and actually you know you, you That's know, a heartbreak though isn't it? I have the greatest of sympathy
0: for both Scotland and Japan and yeah. this if you've built up you've done all your
1: prep okay you may have to face the All yeah. Blacks but away you go yeah, you know that's the thrill That's exactly it I mean. and, and, and to be honest the, uh, you know in the office during the week when we were chatting about it we were f- sort of all hoping that the games would go ahead because that's what you want you yeah. want to, you want to see these games being played this is a fantastic spectacle that happens once every four years you don't want to see any team going out like that the World Cup has been phenomenal for Japan uh, to see another game being played in Japan uh, with a Japanese team is fantastic. Um, and, and just secondly, as well, I know we made light sort of maybe some of the text yesterday. The relationship between ourselves and the Scots is actually perfect. We, you know, we're we're, de- we're working on a Uh-oh. big proposal. Why no, can not I hear a, qu-
0: <laughs> a slight raise <laughs> of my eyebrow?
1: Well, I think that the whole World Cup <laughs> bid was disappointing, but that was a number of years ago. I mean, the reality of, of rugby is is it's always changing, and there's huge deals being done at the moment in relation to uh, the future of the game and we're working very closely with with our Celtic uh, cousins in relation to that so we have a great relationship with Scotland and I I think that was one of the things we really needed to correct this morning uh, was just that there was any suggestion that that we would make representations either behind their backs or uh, directly to World Rugby in relation to it because it was simply untrue Right (laughs) Okay Uh, Well then I wonder why it was suggested you know
0: because these things can start off as rumours and then catch legs and then mm. people say, weren't the Irish dreadful trying to, I, you know, I, I do think, down I them. think
2: when we look at the papers, Marion, there's kind of two narratives now around the World Cup. The one is the narrative around the team and the play and how wonderful it is. And the second is this piece around rugby as a business and how it's evolving as a business. There's a number of articles today but on Jamie Heaslip and his new book and him talking about the distinction between Leinster and Ireland as set-ups and, and how he felt that the RFU and that the Irish setup was much more business-like um, and I, it, I think it also touches on the the other issues that we've seen around player welfare in the World Cup you know the kind of conditions that players have been playing in and I think it speaks to concerns that are emerging around Qatar in 2022 yeah. and I suppose this whole issue around professionalised sports and what are the limits of professionalisation particularly when you start to think about those issues of player welfare so I don't think some of these debates that have opened up around this World Cup are going anywhere anytime soon When I saw the row
0: about the the grass I thought here we go again Saipan <laughs> <laughs> here we come you know training in the car I, had, car, I had car. the look of it the pitch yesterday
3: it looked, was awful, awful. <laughs> and it, there's, there's huge questions and you have a typhoon there on the side of it but on, on the Stephen Jones story it wouldn't have made any sense for Ireland to try and block that game because with all the will in the world whatever um, the IRFU's relationship may or may not be with their scoun- counterparts we're all Scots today yeah, uh, because we need Scotland to do us a big favour so that we can try and avoid New Zealand so it made absolutely no sense and that's why the story is very bizarre but um, I think there's a lot of questions for World Rugby Stephen at the end of this in terms of how Japan I mean great to boost the game in Asia and get the whole thing going there and Uh, You know, the idea that Ireland played no small part in making um, the Rugby World Cup exciting by losing to Japan, uh, (laughs) but for that part of the world. But there has to be big questions asked about how it was allowed to happen in the middle of typhoon season uh, and that you could have pitches that the players were literally taking up the rugs of grass uh, and hiding the ball under it. Yeah, but it was the worst they'd had in 60 years. You know, I mean, we've had some pretty unusual things here we don't control the weather well it's it's entirely possible that is true but then what is your contingency and the idea I I felt bad for Conor O'Shea in Italy um, who didn't get to play the All Blacks and to be fair the All Blacks would probably have hockeyed them but that's not how it works I mean (laughs) Ireland would probably have hockeyed Japan. Um, Fiji would probably have hockeyed Uruguay, but that's why you play these tournaments because there's always that spark of magic and who knows, maybe it might have been Italy's moment in the, in the limelight, they don't get the chance. So you, yeah. it's not really a fair way yeah. of playing it. Yeah.
4: Surely, um, they, yes, Tom, after, after the competition, they'd look at this rule that says that if a game is postponed, mm-hmm. every team just gets a point or you know equal equals yeah. it. And it, it does skew the, the pool matches, I think, unfairly. Mm. Uh, and I would have thought that you know they should look at that for the next time. I don't know. I I, I appreciate that. It, the answer from the organisers is that this was already uh, agreed to, and they signed up to it and all yeah, of that. But yeah. it's it's not really fair. No, it's uh, not. I don't think it's not. I presume
0: like. it that what they will do in the future is say if something has to be cancelled,
1: it will be rescheduled. Uh, yeah, I imagine that will happen. I mean, World Rugby are based here in Dublin, as most people know. So I think you know certainly last week for them has been very uncomfortable. Uh, you know, in 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 fairness to them, all nations have signed up to the participation agreement, including ourselves. Uh, it was something uh, that we discussed uh, probably when we saw the participation agreement and we looked at the implications of it. Yeah, uh, you do go into the tournaments hoping that these eventualities don't come up. And as you pointed out, it was uh, very unusual. I think, funnily enough, the, the condition of the pitch would have been a huge story this week had it not been overshadowed somewhat right, by the weather. fact that we were just grateful that the game was actually going to be played. Yeah. You know, I think we could have uh, we could have taken any any right. pitch, really, just to get the game going. And I think the Scots today as well would uh, would just be very pleased that, yeah. that the game will go ahead. Absolutely. Uh, and, and, and we can get Is back it to Is it going our, ahead without
0: on. an audience?
1: Uh, no no i think the, it, it's going ahead fully uh, oh, right. uh, it's okay. a full fixture i think okay. there would have been an issue there for world rugby as well yeah. in relation to uh, the, uh, the 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 game being played without an audience it's something that we look at as well i mean like you know in the six nations of course, there's been games cancelled at last at the last minute, and it always comes back down to public safety. You know, if there's uh, if there's any indication whatsoever that the conditions aren't right, you can't even allow the people travel to the stadium. So that's why sometimes uh, yeah, they can be cancelled okay. uh, at short notice.
0: The point, Neve Harrigan was making there, and um, Jamie Heaslip was talking about it. God, the IRF, you were. Bunch of meaners when he was finishing up, weren't you? We're, we're so
1: cold, we're so cold. <laughs> yeah, we're <laughs> too. No, you? no look, the, look, the reality is... Look Just Jamie,
0: send him his b <laughs> He was a good servant.
1: Jamie is a, has been a fantastic servant for Irish rugby and I think uh, universally, I think people will uh, w- will look back and think that his contribution in some respects actually had been overlooked by a lot of people while he was playing. Uh, you know, his injury profile was unbelievably strong. He is a phenomenal athlete. He uh, He's a gentleman. So give Jamie, Forty-five and say cheer, and don't even say goodbye. No, no. And look, in fairness, I think you know the 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 reality is it wouldn't have been as it wouldn't have been as cold as that. I think yeah, you know, Jamie, we love you. The uh, the, the reality <laughs> is, uh, you know, the Leinster branch is the Leinster branch of the IRFU. So, like, what happened at Leinster? It is the, the IRFU. Uh, you know, could we have had a out on, on, on the pitch a little bit earlier? Well, we had a out on the pitch during a, a Six Nations game uh, a year after he um, retired. He actually. Retired in the middle of a Six Nations. Um, yeah, and, medical. Uh, orders. Yeah, it was yeah. medical. You know, and it's terrible when players retire. We, we actually have a lot of players that do retire, and it's getting that balance between, uh, you know, the game must go on, and then doing the right thing by the person. I don't recall if we did very much in relation to on pitch stuff for the likes of Paul O'Connell. I think our most recent captain Rory obviously had a great send off in the stadium because yeah. we had a game and he was playing. Um, and I think the same with with, with with Brian O'Driscoll. I think by the end of Brian's last I year, think he was. It, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> so, so there, is is up up there is a balance there, and I think, you know, uh, Leinster, uh, being uh, the Leinster branch of the IRFU, uh, did um, did uh, did the, the, the good thing and they brought him out a good bit. And we did have him out on the pitch oh. eventually. Okay, um, I'm going to. Are you going out? Um, I, w- I may go out if we get as far as a semi-final and the reason for that is we're not counting our chickens. We have a very, obviously everything is budget uh, dependent the IRFU. We're very conscious of the money that we spend uh, so we don't have a huge contingent out there as right. a like the team. We have four people looking after our team from the point of view of media, social media, digital, all of our own channels are very strong nowadays and we're pushing them. So I've already got four people out there. So if I go out it will literally be uh, if we do hopefully get to a semi-final just to give an extra pair of hands if required.
0: Okay, we'll move on from that now. Anyway, that story you deny, absolutely. Uh, Caller was on to say, we are not all Scots today. Remember (laughs) Rockall? Now we will move on to Brexit and it was kind of an extraordinary week and we can anticipate a fairly extraordinary week uh, next week as well. As somebody who has sat around tables at various times, uh, at Aron, what
4: do you make of it? Oh, I think there's been a big change. I think um, despite the fact that um, Irish government ministers and the Taoiseach uh, over the last number of weeks uh, have emphasised that the negotiations can't be bilateral, they have to be between uh, the EU and the UK, uh, I think the deal-breaker, it seems, Um Uh, Was uh, Leo's uh, visit uh, over to Johnson? Um, The soundings coming from that meeting, uh, the very fact, particularly from the Irish side, um, uh, the British side being very quiet for 24 hours, the DUP uh, had completely gone to ground, suggested to me that something pretty major had been agreed. Um, The fact that uh, Stephen Barclay, um, the Brexit um, negotiator on behalf of the UK, was over with Barney the next day. Um, the fact that uh, the discussions uh, intensified—not in the tunnel, as they say—but um, the clear, stupid
0: language. But
4: anyway, clear um, that something pre- pretty major was happening. I suspect that. Um the, the uh, Taoiseach and Johnson have agreed something and that it's subject to the imprimatur of the EU. Um, I think the EU will look at it uh, very closely to make sure that it doesn't uh, affect their single market, um, the integrity of that. Um, yeah, I look, think- I mean, quite a number of the articles uh,
0: are stressing this, that... Well, it's I, not just the love of us, no, no, if you no, know what no. I mean. It's to no, do no. with that border oh, yeah, and absolutely. not having a I leaky border. I mean, there border. will be no
4: sentiment uh, at EU level in relation to this issue. Um, either uh, they can be guaranteed that... Uh, bad standard uh, goods uh, will perhaps leak into the EU or whatever. They will make sure, and the bigger countries, particularly Germany and France, will make sure want want to make sure yeah. that the UK are not taking advantage of of a leaky uh, situation yeah. on the island of Ireland in order to, in effect, undercut their goods. So uh, and
0: and indeed, your commoner garden smuggling. But but I think just reading through the stuff that. Necessity to have a border mm. between the EU and the UK when they're gone yeah, yeah. is is yeah, critical yeah. And, to them.
4: And for us, you know, if there is a win in it, it's the fact that it's not going to be on our border. Um, and you know, if if that is ultimately the situation, it's 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 a great situation for the island of Ireland. Um, you know, I see some some uh, paper reports now saying that the some of the loyalist people are up in arms about it. Uh, when you hear uh, the, the the leader of the NFU, the um, Farmers' Union, he was on uh, RT yesterday um, giving an interview, uh, it, the vast majority of the people uh, uh, of both traditions in the North understand now that they may not have understood two or three years ago yeah. fully the implications of a border um, on the island of Ireland, soft, hard or otherwise, um, that it will have a detrimental effect particularly uh, on the north of Ireland and I, I think even though their politicians aren't uh, saying, saying it, I think behind it all I'd say you will have a sizeable number of the DUP who might wish that Boris would just go and do the deal Right, uh, they'll kick up but you'll hear an awful lot of nice words about the constitutional issue being guaranteed etc yeah. etc. Cetera, et cetera. I'm going to go to London um, for a moment but
0: it, you know, at these critical times and uh, relations and pushing old pains and scratching old scabs and all of that, do you think that there's enough wit around the place for nobody to say, oh, that was a climb down from them, oh, that was a victory for them, oh, that was thing, and so-and-so won and so-and-so lost and just go at it?
4: very gently. I think the trick of all negotiations is that that, uh, uh, it it, it has to be agreed that neither side comes out, you know, delighted uh, with a smile on their face. Um, I think it's important that there is uh, a give on both sides. So in other words, there's going to have to be some pain for us. Yeah. Uh, It won't be the full backstop. Um, But equally so, um, there will be pain for the other side. So... I, I, that's the little we need balance. a fudge, and, don't you we? Know, uh, Tell us about I, the. I time. never saw a t- tunnel when I was out in, um, in Brussels, but the whole idea of the tunnel is that there would be no. You keep your trap shut. Exactly, it's a yeah. it's a mythical tunnel, basically.
0: Yeah, and and the other thing is constructive ambiguity.
4: Oh, I think that. Tell
0: us about the time <laughs> you were talking. Was it to Fishler about fishing in a Fishler about <laughs> fishing in Ireland?
4: Well, uh, when I was minister for marine, there was an issue about the Irish box it was it was it was a, a mythical box around ireland uh to preserve juvenile fish and um it was called the irish box for for decades and it basically it was a protected area where other uh, member states of the european union couldn't come in and fish um are only on on certain conditions, and um, we were losing it under uh, um, a move at the Fisheries Council. It went on for as long as I was in in the department. But anyway, um, I was getting nowhere, and eventually I, I I got on 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 the government jet, especially to go out and uh, have a, a lunchtime meeting with uh, Franz Fischler who was the um, Commissioner for Agriculture and and Fisheries. Uh, I met him out in Crete uh, beside a lovely swimming pool. I bought him a beer. God,
0: they'll be going spare listening I to this. A, but
4: anyway, I, yeah. I bought him a beer and I said, Franz, I need a box. I, does, I said, I don't care what size it is uh, as long as I can tell the Irish people that I have a box. Um, and eventually uh, we agreed that I w- we would have a box. He said, you can uh, call it what you like at home you can call it an Irish box at home, but when you come to Brussels at the meetings, you have to call it um, an area of uh, sensitive, a sensitive area for juvenile fish. And uh, we got our Irish box um, and the fishermen were happy. And, you know, that's there to this the day. Language matters. So in, in all of things, it, it's the language that matters. Mm-hmm. And it also is, as I come back to what I said earlier, um, I had equally in in that I remember uh, uh, coming out of the the final meeting when we agreed that um, I was even though it was a win for the Irish uh, I was very particular when I I did uh, I remember the six o'clock news live from the RT from from Luxembourg I think it was. To, to say, look, you know, we're, we're, we're uh, the meeting has ended and we have an agreement. Um, you know, there's some things that we don't like, uh, but by and large, we're, we're in agreement. The Spanish minister went on his national TV saying it was national sabotage, um, and I was delighted with this because, um, as I say, it's very important what people mm, say. Language, uh, language, and is tone,
0: very, very important. Tone but, matters too. Let me go to London uh, just for the moment to get a little bit of figuring out. Uh, perspectives from over there and we're going to Dennis Daunton uh, of the Irish Times in London Uh, Morning Dennis Good morning Marion I I suppose the general question first of all I mean this is an awful lot of information has been kept very quiet though I gather spokespeople are out on the telly this morning um, on your side of, of the water how do you read it?
5: Well, I think uh, it's interesting what you were just uh, just listening to the conversation you were just having about uh, about these negotiations and fudge. I think in a funny way, this is a different one, because for, if you looked at where the positions were until a few days ago, both sides had red lines which were so firm they couldn't uh, budge from them. So on the British side, it was that Northern Ireland had to leave the European customs union along with the rest of the United Kingdom. There were no two ways about it and that had to happen. And then from the Irish and European point of view, you couldn't have any kind of customs border on the island of Ireland, and the European Union needed to know what's coming into the single market. So it, it was one of those situations where you couldn't really expect either of them to move far enough from their red lines, where they'd be able to meet in the middle and get covered by a layer of fudge. And so what they had to find, I think, was a solution, which which was a creative one that actually respected all of their red lines and one of the things that has emerged, and I uh, this, you know, obviously for a lot of this because of the silence, we're do- using a kind of Colleen Rooney uh, process of deduction or elimination. But in this, I, I do know. <laughs> well, that, she says she's good at it. Well, exactly, and maybe she's right. Who knows? But anyway, but the thing is that what I do know is that uh, the European Union, from their point of view, they uh, s- they maintain that have you know that it's not necessary. They didn't have a red line about Northern Ireland having to remain in the European Customs Union, and they. Thought that there could be a solution in the so-called customs partnership and what this model would mean would be that northern ireland would actually leave the uh, the european customs union and would be part of the uk customs territory so that if the uk went off and did new trade deals around the world they would apply to northern ireland as well but what you would do would be that you'd administer northern ireland as if it was still part of the eu customs union and so you'd have customs checks on the irish sea you'd have customs declarations or at least you have that kind of information coming in and that had the advantage that uh, the europeans would know what's coming into northern ireland and so what could be coming into the single market and then you have this sort of system of rebates which could be elaborate or complicated where if there's a tariff uh, that people in northern ireland would pay the eu tariff but if the uk tariff was lower they'd get their money back
0: right can i um, just pause you there for a yeah. second dennis because we have the um the the top notch in in taxation uh, with us in studio yeah. in the form yeah, of suzanne kelly that sounds so complicated <laughs> that if you were in business you'd just say look what i'll throw in the towel
6: well, i kind of think i understand it <laughs> but i could be wrong
0: well if you don't
6: <laughs> but I do remember to do remember those old distinctions years ago on the north between de jure and de facto in other words, de jure, according to law, it was one way, but in de facto, it was another way. And then we dropped our de jure claim to the North, and we said we recognised the factual position. Well, I think this is the same kind of uh, agreement again. What will happen will be, according to law, the North will step outside the customs, the, the customs arrangements that are operating in Europe, but in fact, they will consent to operate a borderless situation between the North and the South. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to organise a structure to suit that. So according to law, uh, Boris will be able to go back to the English Parliament and say, we are out of the custom union, I have achieved my objective, we are winners. And on our side, we'd be able to say, effectively, we have no border for customs purposes. Now what it all will come down to is converting that into some kind of language and, co- and making sure that you can trust What people say
0: about, well, 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 trust comes
4: in very... Just a a word of caution. I mean, the EU operates on legal certainty. And I think what uh, Barney and Co are doing at the moment is looking to make sure that from a legal point of view, and it's not uh, de facto, they will have no ambiguity in this because France and Germany and the other countries will insist that this doesn't have a possible precedent for some other areas around Europe that might also exploit this as a loophole. Right. Mind you, I'm sure Scotland is thinking about it, but let me go back,
0: if I may, to London. So, Dennis, what is going to happen now? Explain what happens this week, you know, with the Queen's speech and what it means and all of that.
5: So what happens today is that around lunchtime, Boris Johnson is going to brief his cabinet on a conference call, tell them more or less what's happening. Again, I think even the cabinet has been kept out of the loop on most of this stuff. Then later today, uh, Michel Barnier will give an update to EU ambassadors in Brussels. And then this evening, uh, Emmanuel Macron and Angela Merkel are meeting for dinner, not specifically about this, but no doubt they'll be able to talk about it. And Boris Johnson will be talking to them, so the idea being to try to get some support and. to kind of work over whatever the details and the Because are.
0: Angela Merkel fairly slapped him down last week didn't she?
5: Yes, she did, and I think she, uh, you know, by the sound of things, uh, from from what I understand, she actually did say the things that uh, Downing Street said she said, but perhaps she didn't say them in exactly the same way, and she probably didn't think that all of this was going to be leaked out and published immediately afterwards. But she, uh, but certainly she did slap him down, and that was, uh, and so at the beginning of the week there were there were very hostile briefings coming out of Downing Street. The mood has changed. So tomorrow, uh, the Queen's speech happens. Well, that is, uh, it's the Queen reads out a speech where she sets out the legislative program of her government for the uh, for the new parliamentary session it'll be a bit kind of unreal because she'll be uh, really, really reading out the Conservative manifesto for the next election because yes. Boris Johnson doesn't have a majority. None of the things he's go- that she's going to read out, we'll she hasn't it. got a chance of, be a- of being able to affect them. And anyway, we're all expecting an election within weeks. So uh, anyway, she, the, the innovation there is she won't wear her crown because um, it's very heavy. Oh. She apparently will not be wearing the crown tomorrow. So oh, anyway. That's
0: not a political statement.
5: It apparently is not. No, I think it's a statement of just as the age of 90, whatever. You fair enough. A couple yeah. of kilos on your head. Right. <laughs> okay. So, um, so, uh, so then, uh, what happens is the uh, that uh, in Brussels this these negotiations these intensive negotiations continue in the so-called tunnel and you should have in normal circumstances you ought to have a deal kind of done and ready by tuesday if that's to go to the meeting of the european council the eu leaders on thursday but there's some suspicion partly because of some things people have been saying including leo Radker, who said i think we will be able to get a deal in the coming weeks and he said this on thursday yeah. so there's some question Maybe the deal won't be ready in time for the summit, so maybe Michel Barnier, if things are going well, uh, will go to the leaders and say, I think there's sufficient progress to keep talking. And so you all talk about something else on Thursday and Friday, and we'll come back to you kind of next week when we're ready. But the problem is that Boris Johnson has a, a deadline because on Saturday, when Parliament will be sitting for the first time Very since early. the Falkland War on a Saturday, yeah. um, he, according to the law, there's the so-called ban Act, he has got to, if he hasn't got a deal done by the 19th next Saturday, he has got to request... An extension to Britain's membership of the European Union. Yes, Just so
0: say that to me again. If he hasn't got it approved by the EU
5: by then, yes. If there is no deal approved by the EU by the 19th, and uh, and it has also not been approved by the uh, by the Parliament. So in other words, if he has a deal approved by the EU on the 17th, he can bring it back and put it to a vote on the 19th, and if it passes in Parliament, then he's in the clear. But if uh, if the deal either hasn't been done with Europe or it's rejected in Parliament, then he has got to uh, request a, a delay to Brexit by three months till, till the end of uh, January. And he's supposed to write a letter. The letter, they've actually taken the trouble of re- writing the letter for him into the law. And so he has to write that letter. Now, he keeps saying, I'm not going to do it. And there's all that l- legal challenge. But what, The interesting thing about this, though, is that, you know, uh, while he's kind of, you know, messing around about whether he's going to do it or not, if these negotiations carry on, it could be then, you get into the following week, so the uh, 21st, 23rd, 24th of, of October, and... By, uh, at a certain stage, he or somebody will have to write a letter making the request for the extension. And let's imagine at that stage, there is a deal being formed. Well, then this whole question of the extension becomes part of the negotiation so that the Europeans can say or so he can say, okay, now uh, I've got this deal, I actually will need a bit of an extension for a few weeks just to get this through all its stages in Parliament. But just a technical extension. So I'd like to request this extension and, uh, you know, under the law, I have to request it for three months. But actually, you know what? A month would do me. And then they could say, if they wanted to be helpful, okay, a month you've got, and that's all you're getting. And what that does then is it it creates a pressure in Parliament because the Europeans are basically saying to MPs, you choose this deal or it's no deal because we're not giving any more time.
0: And how are the numbers shaping up? I mean, it was reported yesterday that there were uh, 10... Um, Labour MPs who would be villi- willing to vote with him. It looks, given what how Rees-Mogg is quoted today, that he's going to bring the E R G with him. Yeah. Question mark over the DUP?
5: Yes. Now I think it's interesting if you look at this interview that uh, that Nigel Dodds gave to La Repubblica yesterday, uh, or uh, short remarks. Basically, he said, uh, you know, and it sounded very tough. We will not accept anything that uh, leaves us behind in the European Customs Union. We must be full members of the UK Customs Territory. And, of course, under the proposals, as I understand them at least, he'd get his wish. He wouldn't be left behind in the European Customs Union. So, to some extent, they're battling against a straw man. And uh, and so I think there's a decent chance, uh, at least, that you get the DUP on side. And Downing Street... Is very much in touch with the DUP. Okay. One of the people at that meeting on Thursday was John Bew, historian, son of the, uh, uh, Paul of the historian, Be- Paul yeah. Bew. And John Bew uh, has a very good understanding of uh, Austro-Unionism, and he also has been in regular contact with the DUP, so I think he would have a, a fairly good sense of what they could bear.
0: Okay, can I just go to you, Demeter and you wanted to bring in the question of Corbyn, because Corbyn uh, said uh, he'd
4: cor- uh, Corbyn apparently has said that um, Labour are not going to vote for any deal by Boris Johnson are coming out of the meeting with Leo Varadkar, which is, is surprising uh, in that he probably hasn't even seen the details of the deal, um, given that the British cabinet haven't seen the details of, of the agreement. So um, it, it's still a uh, um, pretty uh, difficult issue as to whether it'll pass. the right. But the one other thing I just want to point out, I can't see personally how an agreement... Will be ready for the summit this week. Um, I think it's inevitable Too that much some, some. Yes, I mean, the EU doesn't work
5: that fast. And. Um I would Can I suspect... I that... on Corbyn, uh, Marianne Yes, certainly. Because uh, yeah. I, I, I think it, it, it's, it's worth pointing out that uh, what we do know about Boris Johnson's Brexit deal is that he wants to uh, abandon the so-called level playing field commitments. And so what he's looking for is actually a very hard Brexit. He wants Britain out of the customs union, out of the single market. Which is and all so bad
0: the, for us anyway. You, but you know, whoever...
5: yeah, oh, yeah, exactly. Colin yeah. McCarthy wrote a very good piece on the Sunday Independent. Mm-hmm. That's Catholic right, yes. morning. But also, the fact is that from uh, Jeremy Corbyn's point of view and the Labour point of view, what this looks like is a bonfire of regulations protecting workers' rights, environmental rights. So, so Corbyn's uh, problem with this deal is not so much about what it does about the border or Northern Ireland, it's actually the rest of it. It's the rest of the, uh, of the direction that Boris Johnson wants to move in.
0: OK, um, I was going to, to bring you but just they've they've told me from outside the Home Secretary Priti Patel told the BBC's Andrew Marr show this morning that progress had been made by Boris Johnson in the talks but she repeated a statement that it would not be acceptable for Northern Ireland to be treated differently to the rest of the UK under any customs arrangement well I presume that can be wheeled around a small bit because it is treated differently in, in some other ways at the moment I haven't come to you yet, Kevin um, your your take on it both politically here and the coverage in the paper
3: yeah well the first thing is uh, that uh, Michel Barnier is apparently uh, from what I hear he's on your team he hates the word tunnel as well I do uh, think it's ludicrous and apparently you will never hear Michel Barnier actually say oh, the tunnel good, he always talks about these intense negotiations so I think it's the, the, the broadcast behind the scenes that have created that but to go back to your point I think about what victory looks like for either the British side or the Irish side and I'll never forget back in December 2017, standing outside government buildings on a cold December morning. And they had the lecterns there. And we waited for hours and hours for this press conference that had been called with Leo Faradkirk where we were going to hear about, I think it was only being conceived as the backstop at that stage but essentially what was the original it was Northern the Ireland, Ireland deal yeah. that Theresa May had done before Arlene Foster got wind of it uh, and was straight on a plane to London and I remember looking through the gates as they took the lecterns back inside the building uh, that particular day so I think Dublin will be very slow this time to, to declare victory or to but declare this over that, the line. Surely that's the
2: lesson of this week and the, the meeting outside Liverpool is that the optics were so much better. They have, I think the Irish and British have learned they a learn lot, an awful lot about managing the optics. We had, you know, pictures of them walking through the woods but there was this no double lectern. And case, Lucinda Creighton
0: was writing about that today. played so
2: badly. There was no quoting classical analogies at... Boris Johnson there was none of that
3: and clunky it's, stuff it's interesting as well that relations strangely between Varadkar and Johnson do seem to be better I mean there was a huge shock in Dublin on Tuesday we were all a bit distracted with the budget but one, one person in government which said we'll me, be coming to shortly Downing yeah. Street Angela Merkel. They were shocked that Downing Street could brief in the way that they did against Angela Merkel. So there was a lot of fear, I think, um, among Varadkar's people about going over to that meeting. Well, in one of the things that apparently
0: Angela Merkel said to them, I uh, said to, was it him whoever whoever? Yes, said to Boris Johnson, um, it would be easier for Germany to leave the EU than for Britain to leave the EU because of the peace process, Northern Ireland, violence and history. But that's
2: the piece about Brexit that is so difficult, is that it is this thing of pressing on old wounds all the time. I mean, for a German Prime Minister to say that to a British Prime Minister does then, I suppose, create the context for the subsequent flaming that happened and indeed the reaction of the tabloid press, which captured precisely, you know, how dare, I think the term "crouch" was used. Oh, was um, it? Yeah. The uh, things are
3: so strange. There's a great line in, in Tim Shipman's piece in the Sunday Times today where he's talking about the civil servants in Downing Street and how they knew the moment that oh, things yes. got Lovely serious. Story. Yeah. Um, and of course, we've all become very familiar with Dominic Cummings, but apparently the, the moment that everyone around Boris Johnson realised this is real, there's actually movement here. Was when they saw Dominic Cummings in a suit because he looks more usually like one of the Extinction Rebellion protesters outside number 10 than a <laughs> civil servant inside. And that's the bizarreness of where we're at. But, but that, they did say it.
2: it looked like a suit that he'd borrowed from someone else. At a <laughs> yeah, like, yeah,
3: from a charity <laughs> shop.
0: Uh, Dermot, do you
4: want what to- I find refreshing uh, is uh, the fact that um, an awful lot of our European colleagues actually understand. Uh, the issue on, on Northern North Ireland, and Ireland and the Good Friday Agreement, the all-island economy. Uh, it, it's really refreshing to hear people like Merkel say these things, but also the spokespersons for the European Commission when they come and do the press conferences. Um, I've, I've seen quite a few of them. And... I was astounded at the knowledge that they knew and and they were able to answer everything and they they fully understand, which I think is is good from our point of view.
0: Yeah, because I was watching one of the press previews last night, um, I think it was from Sky, uh, and the contributors still kind of saying, what in the name of God is all this stuff about Ireland? I don't think they're as well informed. I'll I'll, I'll go to to Dennis on this, and, and this could be nonsense. Uh, But I get the feeling that they're not as well informed um, in Britain about the details of the North, the island of Ireland, Ireland, and the history of violence and all that.
5: No, I think that's true. And it's also, of course, the fact that the, uh, you know, the only political party from Northern Ireland that's represented in Parliament is the DUP. We also have an independent unionist, uh, uh, Lady Harman. <coughs> and so the only people who are there speaking in the, in the chamber are people who are saying there's nothing to worry about here, that actually there's no danger, there's no threat to peace from uh, from any of this stuff. Yeah. And so, so that's part of it. I think the other things, which some of them find hard to bear uh, and to understand is that for the first time in centuries, the Irish are part of the bigger, more powerful side in a dispute. And that sort of feels wrong to some Certain, certain kinds of people here. It's it just Yeah, exactly. And sort of, and there's also just this sense of a small country getting in the way. If only you know, mm. these people would get out of the way with their backstop, we could just talk directly to Angela Merkel and Emmanuel yeah. Macron, sort this stuff out. I mean, it would be the same if it was another small country in Europe, that they just, they just sort of feel as if it's the sort of tail wagging the dog stuff. And I think, I think that's where you get some of the intemperate, mm. Comments yeah. to come well, out. And it's
0: probably uh, understandable, in one sense, we're well, what less than one percent. But it's the whole business of violence and history and killing and all of that stuff that we don't want to go back to.
5: Yes, and I think well, I suppose the point is that you see that, again what some of the Brexiteers would say is that by even speaking like that, that you're pandering to uh, to, yeah. to, to violent people and saying that you're going to allow them to determine what you do about a big constitutional issue Uh, but certainly you're right I mean there's just you know there's much uh, much lower awareness or sensitivity to the idea that you know the arrangements that you would make on the border about things they regard as technical uh, that those could actually lead to violence
0: okay this day next week uh, where will
5: we be Dennis uh, well, we'll be, uh, we'll be. Uh, I'd be uh, here, but apart <laughs> <from> that, <laughs> we'll be back. We'll have had a, um, we'll have had the summit, and we'll have had this uh, day in Parliament. And so, uh, either we might have a deal, or maybe we'll be still waiting for a deal, and they'll be arguing in Parliament about extensions and delays. But I think Brexit won't have happened. By okay.
0: Time next week. Do you think that Corbyn? will whip all of this is the last question I can see pleading out there I have to take a break Uh, that Corbyn will whip the Labour Party successfully to block anything?
5: He will certainly them to vote against it. The question is how many of them rebel. There are all these Labour MPs who have been saying uh, they're dying to vote for a deal, they'd love to vote for a deal but they'll never vote for the deal that's presented to them. Okay. And so uh, so I think he'll whip, uh, most of them will follow his lead but the, uh, the question is how many of them will Okay.
0: Uh, yeah, It's all very interesting and very important. Uh, but anyway, we will leave it there. And Dennis Staunton, Irish Times in London, thank you very, very much indeed and we'll take a break. First place. Welcome back to the programme. Now we're going to move on to uh, the budget. And I'm going to start with you, Suzanne Kelly. In a way, it, it's all... You, do we need it? I mean, it was such a non-event and people have all the hype and hype about essentially nothing. It's
6: It's the legislation that matters. The legislation does matter and of course it's not only an announcement. It's a bit like announcing that you're going to have turkey for Christmas dinner. You still have to buy the turkey, you still have to cook it, you still have to do yeah. all the details. And yes. Arlene Foster won't have to buy a
3: turkey. <laughs> <laughs> she got a present.
4: She got a freebie. <laughs>
6: I'm yeah, making it is that it's a kind of an announcement but it's where the people engage with the public and then for instance this is the first time I've seen it this year the Department of Finance have, pu- have published a citizen's budget explanation which you can read and it's in large writing it's on triple size writing and um, you can read what the different budget provisions are or were so I think it's an engagement with the public which the public quite like and they like to kind of have an idea of what's going about as regards finances but this year of course it was all Brexit driven
0: but I mean I um, mean But others have been in here, including Colin McCarthy, whose article we'll be talking about, year after year after year saying, what's it? What's the fuss about? A fiver for everybody. And he always says... What was last year's budget? Yeah. <laughs> what was the budget but the year before? In, in
2: fairness, Marion, like if you look at our political system, politicians will all say to you, you know, Irish people like to be asked for their vote. And there's that relational piece to Irish politics. And the budget is part of that. It's the showing up. It's like, here's the books. We're opening the books for you. This is our fiscal space. This is what we're going to spend. Uh, as Suzanne was pointing out, some of the money that was promised actually was promised last year and the year before. So it, it's kind of farcical in some ways. But then so is the political piece of promises and writing letters and you asked me for this and I. I wrote to the Minister and I sent the letter back. So it is part of our political culture but I do think it's important to recognise the ESRI has done some great crunching on the numbers that came out this week, Karina Dooley and Barry Roundtree and one of the things they highlighted and I don't think it got sufficient airtime on, on Tuesday was the impact of the budget on welfare recipients because it wasn't indexed. So essentially people who are on fixed welfare payments are effectively going to be worse off because of the way in which the budget was uh, constructed because the cost of living, in other ways, is, is rising.
3: We, and we th- all are, because workers, anybody who's getting a pay increase this year and there's a 3% pay increase across across the economy is the average, they're all going to give half of that back to Pascal
4: Donoghue. So most people working are going to pay more income tax For me, year. that's one of the things that, you know, people don't understand yet, but they will as time goes on. And I think it will be a major factor in whenever the next election is being held because my own party uh, were very silent over the budget Uh, I doubt very much if they'll be silent when they're knocking doors in the next election, they, were silent, about, sort of they, can, they uh, can rubbish it when uh, they go. Exactly to about doors. about social non-social welfare increases, which you know in my memory as have a former minister of social welfare, um, there may have been an odd period when uh, we, you know, social welfare people didn't get an across the board increase, but very rarely, and um, that's to, to me that was quite a significant. Well, that's
0: probably a win for Fianna Fáil then, if I can use that awful language. It is in the it, sense that they can blame. Fine Gael.
4: Absolutely, but equally so on the other side, Finnegall will say, you know, we're being um, prudent. Uh, prudent, and and prudent. Pascal has got got his mantle back. Um, whether that cuts muster around doors uh, on a cold November or a nice February, May, uh, nobody Dermot. knows. Uh, November, Phenical, Phenical
6: in the dark qu- and the rain. I know. I'll oh, be quick to point out yeah. that whilst they are in office, they are not in power. And that they're dependent upon Fianna and the independent socialists. And then in those circumstances, they kind of get a sanction or an authority from these people to do the same things. So I imagine that's where the battle lines will be drawn.
0: Stephen, this is part of your past. Yeah, yeah, was, uh... yeah before you escaped to rugby.
1: Yes, absolutely. I used to be, back in the days of the giveaway uh, budgets, and I we used to. Uh, I used to work in uh, KPMG and we used to do the Ready Reckoners, which actually at the time, uh, now they are actually quite dull now, but back then, uh, you know, there was SSIAs or all of these things. And uh, in hindsight, when you look back, Maybe being a bit more prudent back then might have been something that would save us uh, the hurt that we went through. Maybe. Then maybe not as well, you know. <laughs> like we sit firmly on the fence on that one. So. But I think yeah, I think, you know, when they're knocking on the doors, I think nowadays people do understand that. You're right, Mary. Like, what? An extra fibre here, an extra fibre there. But actually, I think the message at the moment is we don't know where we are. Brexit is still hugely uncertain and I think a bit of prudence at the moment is probably the right approach.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, prudence or, or the money in your pocket. I mean, I was going on last week about the bail of briquettes, you know. The people that use the briquettes need the flipping money. Anyway, I'm going to have to take a break, but before I do, uh, I will take the criticism. Miriam. what's wrong with a suit from a charity shop? I've just donated four suits, two by John Rocha and two hand-tailored in London in perfect condition. That came in from Paul. Not a darn thing. I have... Given to charity shops and have bought from charity shops. There was just slip of the tongue. Okay, we take the break.
7: <laughs> Podcast the Marion Fanukin Show at rte.ie/radio.
0: And thank you very, very much indeed. And we are now uh, going to go to the border of Turkey and Syria. I think it's very interesting. Uh, in the news there, 800 people have escaped. And that is the camp, the ISIS camp, uh, where Lisa Smith and her daughter uh, were. And the cards are saying that it is now without guards. But as you know, uh, Turkey launches a series of attacks against the Kurds uh, in northeast uh, Syria, and I'm going to be talking to Colum Doyle, who has lived in that part of the world, and Colonel Colum Doyle, and he's been on with us uh, many times before. But first of all, I'm going to go to Orla Guerin because she's on the move. She, of the BBC International Correspondent, uh, Orla, where are you, and can you bring us up to date on people being killed? ...or displaced and how it is impinging on civilians as well as fighters?
8: Well, we're close to the Syrian border, the Turkish-Syrian border now... ...and the latest displacement figures are quite staggering... It's only day five of this operation, which Turkey calls Operation Peace Springs. And the United Nations is saying 130,000 people have been displaced in just five days. Now, bear in mind, Marin, that these are people who in some instances would have been displaced many times before, might have had to flee four or five times already in the course of Syria's very long conflict. And also, of course, worth pointing out, that Turkey began this operation by saying it was going to create what it describes as a safe zone, uh, allowing for the return of about 4 million refugees that are currently inside Turkey. Well, instead of that... What we are seeing is vast areas of displacement. Uh, The latest casualty figures we have are that about uh, 30 people have been killed, 30 civilians have been killed. Those figures are coming to us from monitoring organisations outside the country. It's very difficult to get reliable, up-to-date information at the moment from inside Syria. But there are about 20 people who have been killed also on this side of the border in Turkey by incoming mortar fire. I think the major concern internationally today will be that breaking news about the mass escape from a camp in a place called Ain Issa. Now, the initial reports are still coming in about this, but it seems pretty certain, according to Kurdish officials, that around 800 people have left that camp. They are uh, IS sympathisers, suspected IS fighters and their families. The reports are saying that the camp came under fire from Turkish warplanes, and either the guards voluntarily decided to open the gates because civilians were at risk, or there was fighting between some of the IS members in the camp. Excuse me, between some of the IS members in the camp and the guards. But either way, uh, the upshot of that is that around 800 people are, are said to have got out through the gates. And of course, this has been the major concern of the international community. One of the major concerns since this offensive began, that the very hard-fought gains uh, in the fight against Islamic State would be put at risk.
0: The, um, b- by the way, if they did escape, uh, now I know that you're not actually there. Like, where would they go? To looking at the terrain and looking at even just be- on beside us now, we have a news thing on their places on fire. Um, like, when you do escape from a prison, I thought, where, where do you escape to?
8: Well, people are moving generally away from the border. All of those who've been fleeing in recent days have been trying to leave areas close to the border because, according to aid agencies, as many as half a million people are living in that strip along the border and they are directly now in harm's way. We have seen ourselves in the past few days... Massively heavy fire coming from this side of the border, airstrikes, artillery fire, mortar fire raining down uh, on two main towns just inside the border, Talabiat and Ras Al Ain. We know at this stage that uh, Turkish forces are claiming to be in, in complete control of Ras Al Ain. And footage that we received yesterday from the town makes it look like a ghost town, basically cleared out of civilian life and now just an area where where fighting is taking place. So there isn't a safe location, there isn't a safe corridor. Uh, Some people are saying, civilians have been saying, that they're having to flee to areas where where there's no water, where there's no food. Uh, We received very, very distressing images yesterday of a mother holding the body of her little girl. And initially, when we saw those pictures, we thought the child was actually dead. Uh, It transpired that the child was extremely weak, very, very ill. And the mother said she had had no food and no water for four days. So the civilian impact is absolutely dreadful and growing. And this Uh. is in an area which has already been subjected to so many years of war.
0: Absolutely. Um, And there's an article which I won't discuss with you. I'll come back to um, with the panel about um, it was quoted. So it's slightly out of date now. And it was a quote, from the Kurds, to say, while we guard this ISIS army, our families are attacked. So, I mean, the Kurds have been dumped on, it seems, uh, since the beginning of time, certainly since the end of the Ottoman Empire. And as you look at Erdogan saying he wants this strip, this buffer zone, he wants to move Syrians that are in his country along there... Uh, where people really believe that what he wants to do is get rid of the cards. Where does Assad figure in all this?
8: Well, I should say that the, the operation that President Erdogan is carrying out, while it is the subject of enormous and growing international condemnation, it is very popular here in Turkey. Uh, He has strong support from the public. He has support from uh, parties in parliament. It is seen very much here by many in Turkey as serving two purposes. One is creating a more secure situation along Turkey's border. Many people here believe they are actually at risk from Syrian Kurdish fighters, who, of course, they paint with the same brush as the band Kurdish separatists, the PKK. Yeah. So many people in Turkey would subscribe to that opinion. And there are more than 4 million Syrian refugees inside Turkey, and that has been the situation for many years. They are a burden on the Turkish economy, yeah. and and they are now a political issue for President Erdogan. And it is a very popular thing here for him to be able to say, I will be sending these people home. So that argument gets a very different reception here inside David. Turkey. But I I think what we what we have seen particularly in the last 48 hours, is an absolute crescendo of international concern. I mean, in er in every direction you look now, there is condemnation, there is criticism, there are calls for President Erdogan to halt this offensive. Uh, We have seen France and Germany, for example and banning arms sales. We've had Britain last night, there was a phone call from the Prime Minister to President Erdogan saying that Britain could not support the operation, calling on him to halt the troops, bring them back, get involved in negotiations. We've had the Americans saying that they are doing, the Turks are doing severe damage to their relations well, with Well, the Washington, Americans are, are kind sanction.
0: of in a you know, non-moral position uh, on this one because uh, many of the, much of the coverage suggests that he was given an open door uh, by President Trump. But uh, just, I'm terrified... Well, there's I'm going no to... doubt
8: about that, Marion. I mean, there is no doubt about that because the key point in all of this and, and the final trigger, if you like, for the Turkish invasion was when America pulled back its troops from two key observation posts along the Syrian border. They didn't pull out all of their forces. And in fact, yesterday, uh, we received exclusive footage of US troops still in position quite close to where their allies, the Kurds, are suffering these massive losses. And those U.S. troops were manning roadblocks just literally standing by. So it's very clear that in, in deciding to pull back those U.S. troops, whether President Trump will ever admit this or not, the Turks interpreted this as the green light President Trump was never going to allow U.S. troops to be caught in harm's way. Once they were taken out of the path of the U.S., of the Turkish invasion, President Erdogan decided he was going to go ahead. So there is no doubt about the very close links between those two things, however much President Trump might like to deny it now, uh, and however much he's now flailing around trying to find some kind of coherent position and trying to find some way to halt this offensive. But there's no indication that President Erdogan is listening to any of the international criticism and I think it will be some time before that takes effect. I don't think he will be willing to stop this until he has made significant gains and can turn around to his domestic audience and say... Here's the victory, I promised you. Right.
0: Um, You were at the funeral of a nine-month-old initially, and then many others. These were the the realities. When you're talking statistics, it's different to actually thinking of a nine-month-old being buried.
8: Well, that funeral was was particularly um, heartbreaking, I would say, because it was a little boy called Mohammed Omar, and in the in the most cruel twist of fate, uh, he and his family were actually Syrian refugees. Now, he was killed on this side of the border in Turkey in the town of Akçakale He was inside his own home with the rest of his family. And uh, mortar fire came from the other side of the border. And we spoke briefly to his mother at the funeral on Friday. And she told us that she had had six girls before she had a boy. She said, I waited 17 years to see him. Uh, and now he's gone. So a dreadful tragedy for one family. But you know, it is important to say that children are being buried on both sides of the yep. border now. There is bloodshed on both sides. And earlier on during the week, uh, we had the story of, of a little girl from inside the Kurdish-controlled areas in the town of Kamishli. She had lost her leg again, I saw just playing outside yeah. her house. Yeah, and and her brother, who was just twelve year old, was killed. So the civilian cost in all of this is mounting. The humanitarian cost is mounting. The consequences in terms of of the progress made against Islamic State. And also, I would have to say, Marion, the risk of this spiraling dreadfully out of control. We have had the first confirmation of a roadside execution by forces allied to the Turks. Video emerged yesterday, which we have now been able to verify, of a prisoner literally being executed on the side of the road. So it's not just the scope of the operation, the aims of the operation, but it's now the conduct of the operation that are going to come under very close scrutiny. Right.
0: Listen, um, Orla, very nice to talk to you. We were worried that we wouldn't get a phone line to you. Uh, So thank you very much indeed for taking our call. Uh, That was Orla Guerin, BBC International uh, correspondent who does amazing work, I have to say. Uh, And I will uh, now go, (coughs) excuse me, if I may, to uh, the Limerick studio, and thank you indeed, um, Colonel Colum Doyle, uh, for waiting for us. But we were just afraid we might lose uh, that line. Um, you lived in the region, you worked in the region, you worked, you know, with various people from UN to to whatever, and you know the region very very well. Can you, as briefly as possible? Explain who the Kurds are and why nobody, they it, it appears that they have been let down so many times.
7: Uh, good morning. Um, I, I would say, that first of all, the Kurds are one of the indigenous peoples that inhabit a mountainous region referred to by them as Kurdistan. And it's a region which straddles the borders of Turkey, Iran, iraq syria and a small portion of armenia in total they constitute about 30 million people and they make up the fourth largest ethnic group in the middle east however they have never obtained a permanent nation-state so in fact kurdistan is a region rather than a state right now In September, um, I think it was 2017, Iraqi Kurdistan held a uh, a referendum in independence and it was well supported by the Kurdish people of Iraq, despite the government terming it as illegal. But, however, attempting to establish an independent state is still far from reality. And there has been a determined opposition from these four countries, Turkey, Syria, Iraq and Iran, not to give the Kurds nationhood. Yeah, can I ask you why? I mean, you you say that
0: they were dealt out from at the end of World War 1 and I don't know the region in 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 the way that you do but for some reason everybody seems to hate the Kurds and kind of regard them as subhuman in comparison to themselves but used them very
7: successfully to squash ISIS well yes i mean certainly i um, mean at, at at the end of, of with the defeat of the Ottoman Empire at the end of the first world war The Western Allies had made a provision for, in fact, a Kurdish state. But a few years after that, with the Treaty of Lausanne, which set the boundaries of modern Turkey, there was no provision made. So since then, these Kurds have lived in a region straddling these four nations, and none of those four nations want to grant them nationhood, because they would lose territory. But they came into their own, really, in the modern area, because in 1978, um, Abdullah Öcalan established the organization, the PKK. Now, this was an organization established by the Kurds, which called for an independent state. However, within six years of that happening, they turned themselves into an armed struggle, and they have been basically in conflict with Turkey for the last three decades. But all of the countries—Iraq, Iran, Syria, and Turkey—have treated the Kurds very badly, and all of them, in their own time, are determined that they will not give them their nationhood. And this makes it very difficult for the international community, for the United Nations. You know, Turkey, for example, is a member of NATO. Yeah. So, 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 what do they do? Um, the PKK this organization has been condemned um, by the United States and it's also um, deemed to be a terrorist organization uh, by um, the European Union. So what the Kurds have done in the last few years, however, is to occupy territory because of the civil war um, in Syria. And they joined up with an organization called the SDF, which is the Syrian democratic forces, which was basically a multi-ethnic alliance of mostly Kurdish and Arab militias that have been a critical partner on the ground in Syria for the United States-led international coalition against basically Islamic State. And if you remember the siege, um, I think it was 2014 of Kobani, that town close to the Turkish border. There was comment at the time that the Turkish president was more concerned about what the Kurds were doing as he would have been against Islamic State itself. Right. But when the the Kurds defended that town against IS, the Turkish president would not allow any Kurds from inside Turkey to cross the border to come to their assistance. So really the Kurds now had been dealt a, a massive blow with the decision by the United States to pull out. And as Orly Gerlund rightly pointed out, it really gave Turkey permission to go in and take over this territory. Now, the question, of course, to be asked is, you know, if the Turkish president is going to try and have some sort of a safe zone uh, in northern Syria, not alone is he invading or having an incursion into Syrian territory, but he also has to get rid of the Kurds in order to allow the resettlement of 2 million, or he quotes even nearly up to 4 million uh, Syrian refugees. And
0: where does he put the Kurds?
7: Well, he doesn't really care. That's the, that's the view. And when you ask the question of Orla Guerin, where did these Kurds go? Remember 50,000 of, of them being isolated near Singar during the war, they are a mountainous people. They really don't have a homeland. So all they will try and do is seek some sort of solace or security away from the territories at the moment. But I do think it is a it is a great threat of a humanitarian disaster. Uh, just
0: before I go to the <coughs> panel here to talk uh, to you, Colum, didn't this happen also uh, during the whole Saddam Hussein carry-on and the free flying zones and who got oil and all of that and there was money going in there and the Kurds
7: used the money for education improving uh, thing and at the end of it gone. Exactly and you may recall in 19, I think it was during the Iran-Iraq war in 1988 where there was a chemical attack um, used against the Kurds And about 5,000 of them were massacred at that time. Now, that caused an international outrage. But here we are now in 2019, and the Kurds could be in for, with the actions of the president of Turkey in for a torrid time. And it appears to be on the outside with the tacit support of the United States and President Trump
0: and I'll come back to what the rest of the world is doing and the UN I mean I know the UN is the best that we have but it sometimes would make you weary uh, about its role and function Dermot O'Hearn you were uh, formerly um, a Minister for Foreign Affairs uh, we don't necessarily <clears throat> excuse me sing from the one hymn sheet with all of Europe on matters to do with international relations and, and foreign policy and all this but We have had a good record, I think,
4: of speaking up in situations like this. We have, but in relation to this, I mean, I think the um, responsibility for what has happened has to lie firmly on the door of uh, Donald Trump. Uh, It's quite uh, amazing to think that... they I think they only... Colin might confirm this. um, They've only withdrawn 50 troops... Yeah. From this particular section. Yeah, that's what I saw, the report. Um, Apparently Trump said that as long as urban areas were not being targeted um, and so on and so forth. Trump uh, is deciding foreign policy based on tweets. At one stage he said uh, if the Turks attack the Kurds um, that he will send in additional troops into the area. Um, He also said he
0: would attack um, Turkey
4: in terms of uh, of sanctions. sanctions. And the latest thing is he said he will mediate between the Turks and the Kurds. Well, if it hasn't been sorted by now, I don't think Donald Trump is going to. Um, But I I think all, I mean, to come back to your point about, you know, uh, international organisations, this is the problem. I mean, when I became Minister for Foreign Affairs, one of the sort of terms I learned was multilateralism. Uh, And that's a fancy word for basically countries getting together in uh, uh, common alliances whereby they um, uh, uh, are are there to put pressure in relation to different issues the UN. 192 states it's very difficult to get agreement around uh, a table and the problem is some of the major countries including the US have a veto on that that's the big problem with the UN yeah five um, of the founder members have veto so they can stop anything that's the problem with it uh, in relation to the EU uh, generally speaking we would uh, um, uh, go along with the the voice of the EU it doesn't stop us from making our point I think um, uh, the, what will sort this is international pressure, as, as Orla has said. It's it's got louder and louder and louder, and it will. Um, it's it's only when you see what is happening there um, that th- that this is a disaster uh, unfolding, as as all of these have done in recent times in front of our eyes. Correct. And the international community is standing idly by. Mm. I note that Trump is due to meet er- Erdogan. On the, I think the 13th of November. I mean, that should be fast tracked. But Trump has the key to this. Um, he's dumping on the Kurds who right. assisted him in getting rid of ISIS.
0: That's the hard and, and
4: this is and uh, apparently Trump at some um, me- one of his meetings in America. I mean, this is all about domestic politics. He is basically wanting to be able he's to say to his, to his yeah Election. that we have we have drawn. But apparently he said at a recent meeting that. Sure, the, the, the ISIS um, uh, uh, people, um, 70,000 uh, of whom are in a, in camps in this area, 2,000 in prison, uh, that the Kurds have been minding with the Americans, he said, well, sure, they could end up in Europe, as if that's a good thing. Well, uh, we'll uh, come back to that
0: in a moment. Mm-hmm. If you wanted to come in there.
4: Well,
2: I, I think it actually links in also to some of the broader stuff that's going on around the impeachment of Donald Trump because if you follow this on social media, there's been a fair bit of coverage of the interactions that the Trumps have had with Erdogan and with Turkey and the kind of inappropriateness of that relationship for want of a better word. There's a tweet of himself and his daughter in Turkey. He has business interests there. So I, I do think it links into this broader macro piece around Trump and his impeachment. But there is a second piece of it, Marianne, and I think you highlighted there about Assad and the Russians because this is the other piece that's relatively silent. And yep. There's a number of pieces. There's one piece particularly in the Sunday Business Post today that uh, talks about Emmanuel Macron and I'm sure this is something that's going to come up in his meeting with Angela Merkel He is arguing for a repositioning of Europe's relationship with Vladimir Putin. And, of course, the the Russian influence in this region has been absolutely formative on how this conflict has gone. In stark contrast, it had to be said to the European Union's role in the region, which has not been...
0: uh, Well, I was listening to some Kurdish spokesperson yesterday saying, where do we go now? Hmm. We um, go to Putin. Or we go to Assad. You wanted to come in there for a moment, yeah, yes? I think there's
1: just a couple of points on this for me. I think uh, I was completely shocked during the week when when I heard Trump talking about, you know, the fact that there was some association with, well, you know, they hadn't helped us back in the war, therefore, you know, we don't owe them anything. Normandy. Um, and this, this is all about land. Tinkalipoli. Yeah, but making you anyway. so flippant of it. And, and, of course, the importance, again, here, uh, and this really highlights the real importance of people like Orla and good journalism which is fundamentally important to this side of the world where only when you bring the human nature and those stories of those children back does it kind of hit home here. Uh, And I think in some ways we've lost a little bit of empathy, um, maybe because there's so many horror stories nowadays or maybe because people like Trump are starting to actually have influence here as well. And that, like, recently we had huge stories around direct provision centres here and how, you know, well, humanitarily they're terrible places to go. Well, I'm sure these people would just only love to come over now and get a bit of safety. And and I think we ourselves need to look at how we are changing as a society in relation to how we see these things. Because I think the politicians are not, uh, and I mean uh, like Trump, not covering themselves in glory here. But, you know, if you look at what happened in Italy...
0: Uh, with people coming over from North Africa. And they came over and they came over and they came over and they were all deposited in Italy including by us. I mean people were saved in the Mediterranean and then plonked into Italy and the rest of Europe did nothing and then what happens? You get people turning against immigrants and you get right wing views and you get Salvini and just like Erdogan, I presume having 4 million people on your territory is
3: not easy. And we were clapping ourselves on the back for sending a navy ship over to do it yeah. and, and then yeah. committing to tiny tiny numbers coming over here once they were vetted and processed and all the hard legwork I suppose was done to some extent. Mm. But I think what's most worrying about what's happened in the past week really there, like this conflict on, on the Turkish border has been coming for years. Yeah. It's been coming for a really really long time and that, that bubble has burst but it has burst with such ferocity in the space of three and four days that you're talking about a 100, 150,000 people displayed you're talking about, I, I, I don't know what the death numbers are yet, but they're going to be dozens, and this isn't going to end quickly, so it's opening up a whole new front that's going to run and okay. run. Okay, let me go back to Colm. Uh, <clears throat> I mean Colm, you worked with the, with the UN some
0: of us get weary because obviously of the vetoes that exist, but Clearly you wouldn't have worked with them if you didn't see a purpose in them uh, how do you see what might be possible to do now or will there just be slaughter of the cards
7: i can i can't really answer that because uh, i don't know you know i don't know what the solution is um i think for, from the point of view of the references to russia uh, it is quite interesting because russia is obviously eager to see the united states troops leave syria That would weaken Washington's influence in the region and is determined to draw Turkey away from NATO. So um, this suits Russia to a certain extent. Um, You know, President Putin's influence is quite considerable now in the Middle East, particularly in Syria. He's now a major player. And, um, you know, this Turkish president is determined and will go against the international, um, you know, opinion. He said, I am determined to carry out what I think is right for Turkey, and I will not be deterred from doing it. And if you do not agree with what I'm doing, well, then I'll just send, you know, four million refugees into Europe. So he has a certain amount of what he deems is legitimacy. And unfortunately, whether we accept it or not, the President of the United States has in my view, uh, concurred with that sentiment. I don't know what the international community can do. As I said earlier, Turkey is a member of NATO. That's a dilemma for that organisation. But I would have to say in relation to the United Nations, and I worked there for for a few years, it can be a very bureaucratic organisation that takes so long to make decisions. However, What I would say in its defense is the United Nations is still the only global organization that exists. It is the one global organization that one side will go to if it wants to take a case against another and both sides will accept it of course it is very slow to move because it doesn't have a standing army yeah and uh, that is one of its dilemmas and it takes so slow to make decisions the security council or the permanent five of the security council are one of the biggest obstacles to progress because it is very easy for the major powers just to say we'll take it to the united nations but we will exercise our veto and i think until that dilemma within the un is sorted out things if will move ever at snail
0: pace. If ever. If ever, yes, I yeah. agree. Yeah, which is kind of... But as you say, it's it's all we have. Uh, but anyway, as we speak, those poor, misfortunate people are being bombed. But, I mean, one has to be fair. They're bombing back. I mean, I mean that's war. And as yes. Orla was talking about the children, the nine-month-old uh, child and the 12-year-old boy, they are... Well, the, the adults do too but they are the kind of the essence of, of what is all so wrong about war. Um, anyway, uh, I was going to ask you about other matters but time has moved on. Uh, I want to say thank you very, very much for coming in uh, to studio and we'll take a break as I say goodbye to Colonel Colum Doyle in the Limerick studio.
7: Podcast, The Marion Fanukin Show at rte.ie slash radio. I now have
0: notification that uh, Japan is leading Scotland by nineteen to seven. So you can all sit on the edge of your chairs now uh, with worry till we see uh, what happens there. Now, th- but there was loads of things in the papers today that we didn't get to, but because of all that happened this week and the demonstrations and what was in the budget, uh, I think we should have a look at how uh, the green agenda. Uh, was dealt with there. Um, I'll go to you first on this, Suzanne, because, OK, we got the extra charge
6: a few extra charges you might just initially say oh it was a bit of a carbon tax it's only added 3p to the um, um, fill of petrol or whatever yeah. but the position is, is there's also a little stuff coming down the road as you said we know we're having Turkey but we had no on the detail well the reality is that in the finance bill they're going to be changing the benefit and kind rules in respect of diesel cars so you've got to watch that space to see what's happening there and there was also a nitrous oxide um, assessment on VRT change so that that brings in an extra 25 million so there's continuously little tweaking things going on on the carbon taxes yeah yeah. Yeah, if you take you know that
0: we're already paying carbon tax and we have since the Green Fianna Fáil Mm -hmm. uh, government 2009 2009
6: 2009 2009, yeah.
0: yeah You make the point that ne- there was never a study done on whether or not it changed people's behaviour.
6: Not at all. And in actual fact, you need to do that because for ten years we've had it and we've been paying half a billion, and it's been going into the central exchequer funds. But none of the there's about twenty reports on the whole area, and they kind of engage in a group think, or I think um, some journalists call them alipies for public policy, and they all cons- ca- sort of subscribe to the idea that if you have a carbon tax, it will effectively reduce fuel emissions. But they have not done any surveys or proved or established or any thesis or analysis of the fact that we've had carbon tax in place for 10 years and what effect it has. Now, it's not that I'm a denier of of, of green taxes, but in order for taxes to work, Uh, They have to be effective. And um, these kind of taxes are curious taxes because the normal general tax is I go out and collect the money and I spend it on the expenditure of the state. These are taxes to change behaviour and they have ingredients or characteristics which are peculiar to conduct taxes. So usually you would say in a carbon tax, the only way you'll change behaviour is that it's such a swinging cost to the community that they immediately go out and change their behaviour. So if you want to buy an ice lolly, it costs €1. You want to turn people off ice lollies, you charge them €10, they stop buying ice lollies. Another characteristic is there must be something else he can do. In other words, if you're not using petrol, can you go and, um, like Dermot, have an electric car yeah. or whatever? So the position is, is it has to be an alternative there. So we need to assess all the impacts okay. of it as a successful tax. Okay.
1: So you nodding on, on on that as well? Yeah. No. I, I think I think that's the the, the whole how, how to change behaviour is really interesting. I think for me over the last while, and, and I'm I'm even trying to think back what the genesis of it was, the reduction of plastic usage uh, is, and even today when we were taking the photograph for the, the tweet, we were conscious. Was there any plastic on the on the table? Because you will get people tweeting and saying, "Why have you got plastic bottles there?" Which is great, and uh, there, there wasn't any plastic in the room uh, or, or on the yeah. table. But even the water in front of us is in is in is in uh, is in glass bottles, as opposed to plastic. And it's all about how we change behaviour. And I think the, the budget elements will drive right. some elements of that, but it has to be uh, our own responsibility too. Niamh Harrogate.
2: Yeah, my own view. Uh, Marion, is that if you wanted to stem the green wave, the carbon tax in this budget was the way to do it. Um, because if we look at what's happened across Europe with carbon taxes, the, the, the way in which an increased carbon tax like this is introduced, the context very much impacts on its success. So, for instance, if you look at what Emmanuel Macron did, he introduced or in, increased carbon taxes at the same time as he cut wealth taxes. So it made it look like he was penalising you know, poor people and giving money to the rich. If you look at what happened in Sweden when they introduced carbon taxes and they created a, a very good kind of offsetting cont- context, which you know affected the most, protected the most vulnerable people who were affected by them, there was much more public acceptance of them. I, I think this increase in in carbon tax is not significant enough to make any change in behaviour. It's it's a blanket consumption tax which are always quite regressive in my view, as in they impact often vulnerable on people hardest. Yeah. Um, but yet, it's significant enough to raise considerable ire towards the Green Party and make it appear that the Green Wave is essentially about new taxes. Um, and I, I think this, and I think the Greens, in a sense, I think Emma Ryan's comments didn't help this particularly in relation to, to rural Ireland, because, of course, rural Ireland's experience, particularly since 2011, has largely been an experience of services being cut so post offices guard stations banks and one of the consequences of that is that they use their cars more well
0: this is very true and I heard a very interesting call this is quite months months ago maybe even years ago from a woman who was a postmistress and she was going to be closed and she was agreeing to close but she contacted all the people in the area and she asked them to use the post office and then she would stay open they didn't use it, mm. you know. They mm-hmm. didn't
2: use it, and so you've got to look at the chicken and egg, and what leads to this. And, yeah. and for instance, <coughs> if if we had inter- if the congestion charge had been introduced in Dublin, for instance, where there is the Lewis that's and there's bosses, changed. that actually would change behaviour. But if you're living out in Donegal in the middle of nowhere, the chances, regardless of what taxi you put on, you're still going to have to drive, and that's okay. a problem.
8: We take another break.